Welcome to the Stories She Sings, where we bring messages of biblical women to life through inspired songs. We hope this podcast will be a place of rest, refuge, and refreshing in the presence of God. Hi, my name is Karen Grant, and I'm a licensed massage therapist, a vibrational attunement massage therapist, and I do work with the five senses and the healer's touch method, a method that has been created to bring rest and relaxation to those who are in the process of mending their hearts from heartbreak and from grief and anxiety and stress. It's an alternative approach, and I have here with me as my guest, Dr. John Skidmore, who is a psychologist and who I will be interviewing as part of this video on bridging the world of psychology and the world of healing arts and the holistic alternative methods of working with people who suffer from mood disorders and the like. So, Dr. Skidmore, I am so happy to be with you. Thank you, happy to be here. And I would like to have you tell our viewing audience exactly what it is you do and your areas of expertise and the performance, peak okay. performance and all of that. I'm a licensed psychologist. I've been here in Utah County now for almost 20 years. Um, my practice includes a number of different areas. Um, anxiety disorders as it relates to stress, as it relates to performance issues, as it relates to uh, coping with the chaos in the world um, is a big part of what I do. Part of that sense of anxiety disorder has taken me into the world of coaching performing artists and individuals who are specifically wanting to make sure they've got the edge they need when they're out there, whether it's at a pulpit, whether it's at a conference, whether it's on a court, um, on a stage. And so that's something I've been doing for quite a while as well. I've been on the, I'm on the faculty of the music department at BYU, teaching the psychology of music performance. Um, and so as I look at what I do there in terms of coaching and teaching performing, art, performing artists, one of the things that's been fun there is to develop a process to really help people take a performance out of the context of the all-important event that they're either going to win or lose, succeed or fail at, or put it into a process that they can learn from, they can use to step forward with, that they can use this as a way to really improve and continue to improve their performance. A lot of what I do in my office um, relates to this because we're all performers of some type, whether we're being parents, a mother, whether it's um, a father who's you know running his business, whether it's an employee. Uh, parenting is certainly a big issue there as well. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to coach parents and to work specifically with parents to help structure their family in a way that the respect, the cooperation, the communication all increases, so the fun and enjoyment occurs. That's something that I do that goes to another level in terms of dealing with uh, divorce issues, reunification, custody issues. I don't do custody evaluations. But That's I, the one thing he doesn't I do. I do not do custody evaluations. I tried three of those, I'm not doing another one. Um, <laughs> that wasn't any fun at all. Um, but the reality is, you know, helping individuals and whatever their performance concerns are improve um, families, improve their performance and whatever they're trying to work with. Um, I want to just interrupt for a minute and say, do you see why I chose him? <laughs> um, I'm so excited about Dr. Skidmore's work, and I've known you since 2004, 2005, mm -hmm. and I was, I don't even know how we met, how that link happened, but 
I'm so excited that it did, and we've stayed in contact through the years. Um, I would like for you to share how you came into your understanding of the importance of the healing arts in the, and coupling that in the world of psychology. Uh, that's a pretty easy story. I'm in graduate school. I've never been more stressed out in my whole life. Um, and as I finished graduate school, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I was spent. And a variety of different physical complaints like carpal tunnel syndrome had emerged. At one point, I couldn't pick up a pencil with my wrist. And um, just trying to recover and healing from that um, took me on a journey wow. um, from you know, chiropractics, acupuncture, massage therapy, um, a few other wild and crazy things. Um, but it's like, okay, what, what am I needing that's going to support me? And um, one of the things that I've found, and it's been great to watch how mental health as a field and, and medicine in general has become so much more open to the mind-body connection and recognizing they're not separate entities. They've got to be worked with together. And so discovering benefits from massage therapy, you know, something that really has been a great thing. That's how part of where we got connected. Um, but really realizing that we need multiple ways of supporting and healing. And I think one of the things that also became very apparent to me as I've referred clients to massage therapists or the healing arts kinds of things, they deal with their things faster. Whatever kind of emotional and physical stuff is kind of going back and forth. And that as a psychologist, I get to address certain skills, certain ideas, certain history, and, and have an impact on the client uh, in a different way than the massage therapist does. And uh, that's one of the things I've seen is that tandem or that partnership is much more effective in helping people deal with it. Whatever it is they're dealing with, they move through things faster. Well, the body is a storage unit, so to speak. And those emotions get lodged and left lingering. The residues of energies mm -hmm. from past hurts and anxieties that never got resolved, even as all the way back into childhood. When we were two years old, we didn't have the, the vocabulary to say what hurt or, mm -hmm. or how it hurt. And so that leads me into my next question. In my studies as a licensed massage therapist and as someone who's been very interested in healing arts, I, I learned about these two almond-shaped glands in the brain called the amygdala. And I learned that New York University did a study where they found that the smallest diffusible molecules were aromatic molecules, not like peanut oil or olive oil or coconut oil, because those were thicker, heavier oils, but the, the aromatherapy oils, the fine particles of oils, would travel up through the olfactory bulb and start to do gentle release work with the, um, the emotions or the energies that got left in the amygdala all the way back to childhood, kind of like a computer chip holds all that energy on it and that information. And that as this was, as this was gracefully, gently released, that emotional clearing occurred. So when I met you, I didn't know the science of what I was doing. I had just felt very impressed when I graduated from massage school in 2001. I felt very urged as I was sitting there at my desk the last day, the words came to my mind, now you are going to take everything that you learned in massage school, you're going to go study aromatherapy, you're going to add the music, the music as therapy that you do with Christ-centered music, you're going to put it all together into a five-sense protocol, 
and you're going to work with people to help them to be comforted, to help them to relax as a relaxation method. So I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. It wasn't until I met you, probably four or five years later, that you started to explain to me that you believed in this, and I was shocked. I was like, there's a psychologist out there that believes in, in what I'm doing, and I didn't scientifically know. So I would like for you to give us a description, your beautiful whiteboard presentation. I sat enthralled watching his whiteboard presentation of his diagram of the brain, the toxic loop and everything that goes on. When we are suffering from mood disorders, from temporary mood disorders, and how we can get out of that toxic loop. And then I'll add my piece as a music massage aromatherapy worker with energy, how that might be expedited so that you can understand the inner workings of the brain coupled with your five senses. Well, this will be one of the simplest explanations of the brain, and we'll just start with that. Recently, I was in Arizona teaching a class at my sister, sister Kristen's house, and as I was teaching the mothers there about the, the properties of the five senses and how we can access them to bring nurturing into our homes and families and help to dispel any negativity and raise the vibration of joy in our homes, afterwards a woman came up to me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, everything you were saying was true. She said, I'm going to run home right now and get a book for you. This is her book. She loaned it to me. It's called Art with the Brain and Mind. This book is fascinating as it is a study of how the healing arts works to help heal the brain, the power of music, the power of the five senses. I am grateful to be understanding and studying more as I mature in my process. The science behind what I knew in my heart as a 32-year-old just starting this process. So now with the brain in mind, I would like to turn the time over to Dr. Skidmore, and then we'll we will discuss how the arts affect the healing of the brain. This is gonna be one of the simplest explanations of the brain you'll probably ever get. And I'm not gonna assume this is even anatomically correct, but it all works. And it'll be a good example of what we're talking about. There's really two parts of the brain when it comes to mental health issues that we need to be aware of. Um, the first is our frontal cortex, in the prefrontal cortex area, underneath the forehead. This part of the brain is about the size of your fist. This is the part of the brain where we explore our options, we understand our choice and agency. This is where we become creative, we plan, we organize. This is also where we can have the social context in terms of empathy and understanding and relationships show up in this part of the brain. Logic and reasoning are what this part of the brain is famous for. Now, as a survival tool, this part of the brain is to help us move whatever we're experiencing forward, to help us move beyond where we are at, or to manage the circumstances and situations where we're at. It's interesting to note that this part of the brain takes till we're approximately 25 years old before it's fully developed or all the way plugged in. So this is a very important part of our brain. Over here in the midbrain area, there's two other areas that are very important. Uh, Karen mentioned the amygdala. Well, the amygdala, and the emotional center and there's a variety of very small little structures are more the size of fingernails in this part of the brain. Now, this part of the brain has the responsibility of our survival. You may have heard of this referred to as the fight or flight center of the brain. As this part of the brain gets triggered, it releases a whole series of neurochemicals, adrenaline being one of those. 
and it creates a whole series of changes in the body. When I work with performing artists, one thing is pretty clear to me is most of them really don't understand this part of the brain. They don't understand what's being triggered or why. Well, most of us don't understand that, and most of us don't really have much of a sense of how do we regulate or even manage a sense of being triggered, and what's the effect or the impact that that has on us. From the very moments of our life and birth, we are encoding information in this part of the brain. We are learning about what is painful. That's really all it wants to know first. What is painful? Well, as it continues to grow, as a child continues to grow, it learns about pleasure and pain. And my granddaughter was at the house, I gave her a blueberry, and she just lit right up with this big smile. That zinged the pleasure center of her brain. Her, her dad puts in a piece of green pepper, she promptly spits it out. So again, she's already learning about what is in her world and how to relate to it. Anything that relates to pain gets tagged and it's remembered. Again, this has survival value. If we remember what's painful or dangerous, we can avoid it. As we grow, we learn about physical pain, obviously, as we fall down. We also learn about emotional pain, social pain, embarrassment, things like that. So literally anything of a physical, social, or emotional nature gets encoded in this part of the brain. And if it's been tagged, it's constantly scanning. It's like it's on 24-7 radar going back and forth looking for what is tagged. If it recognizes that tag as a historically painful event, there will be an automatic response. Now, I've experienced this response more than once when I've encountered a rattlesnake, and I'm glad it's there. I probably had a half dozen rattlesnake encounters, and never once have I had the urge to bend over and pet it. Why? Because my brain has told me this is dangerous. This is something that could hurt or harm me. So we've got to recognize this midbrain is the home of the first response. Now, in life-threatening situations, this first response will actually take over, and it's going to serve you, and you'll either live or die. That's just how it's going to work. But so much of what we deal with every day in terms of stress, anxiety, disappointment, grief, loss, has nothing to do with a life being threatened. So one way to start to retrain this part of the brain is to take on a model such as, if it's not life-threatening, it's trivial. If we consider it might be trivial, this part of the brain can manage trivial matters very well. If we have it threatening, dangerous, we become reactive, we're in this fight or flight response, and that first response will take over. So with emotional issues, with life issues, I like to describe the first response as something that is not to be trusted. Now that doesn't mean it's always gonna be wrong, but that first response is not to be trusted because it's going to be coming from this part of the brain, your habits and history, and we want to be able to get into this part of the brain to move forward. The goal of any kind of therapeutic approach, especially where history is involved, is to recognize when we are triggered, when we're activated into this part of our brain, and to be able to recognize we are in the process of a first response, but we've got to be able to redirect that in a response that's going to move us forward. A response is going to be able to be creative, a response that's going to allow us to be able to manage the circumstances and situations that we're in, in a healthy way. I'm looking at this board, you can see I have the word life written here. Consider that our brain is our primary tool in terms of how we manage our life. And one thing we know about life is stuff will always be coming in and going out. If air isn't coming in, there's a problem. Air comes in, air goes out.
So life really does indicate that there's an exchange, an exchange process. And one thing we also realize is we're not in control of the majority of the things that come in and out of our lives. And there's times when something comes in or goes out, whether it's wanted or unwanted, wanted doesn't matter, it will trigger that danger center in our brain. When that gets triggered, we go to a stress response. Now, in the context of the rattlesnake, that stress response puts us in a place of fight, flight, or freeze. We live through it, we go past it, and once again, we're now enjoying our hike or our experience. We're back to a state of, this is fine, this works, this is good. That's how the stress response is supposed to work in our lives. The danger, the threat is supposed to show up, then it goes away, and we're fine. We've used the increased muscle tension, the increased mental focus, we've used the adrenaline to help us deal with that situation, and then the situation's over and we return to a sense of calm and normalcy. Well, so many of the things that we deal with as parents, we deal with as employees, we deal with people in life, we get in the stress response and we get caught in a place of fight, flight, or freeze. And it's not something that goes away quickly. It's not something that we can manage. And suddenly we get caught in what I like to refer to as a toxic loop. There is no doubt about the toxicity of the stress response. It impacts us, our, our physical health. It actually is corrosive to our body and our brain. The neurochemicals are not designed to be there very often. So if they're there a lot, it compromises our immune system, it impacts the memory centers of the brain. Somewhere between 70 and 90% of your trips to a physician will be caused by the toxicity of the stress response. So this is a huge thing in our lives. Now, the reality of being caught in this toxic loop is it continues to become more and more painful. So the person who's struggling with financial issues or issues with children, issues with employment, issues with their neighbor's dog, whatever it is that seems to be triggering them, it doesn't really matter. Fight, flight, or freeze becomes this loop. And as the, long, the longer we stay in this loop, the more pain, the more dysfunction, the, main, the more struggle we're experiencing. Now, one of the most destructive elements of this toxic loop occurs when in the process of the pain we're experiencing, we want to find some kind of relief. We want to feel better. We want to feel different. We don't want to feel the pain, but yet when we fought it, we lose. When we run from it, it follows us. And when we're frozen, we're just waiting to die. In other words, we are in trouble. We don't see a way out of this toxic loop. This is where escape becomes the thing that all of us have figured out in one way or another. Now, the famous escapes fall into the drugs, alcohol, sex, food, and gambling. And you can look at these as chemical, addictions such as drugs and alcohol, this is an external chemical that's being introduced. When you start talking about food, sex, and gambling, you're talking about an internal chemical response. There is no doubt about how inside our own heads there's a pharmacy. And the neurochemicals of adrenaline, the dopamine, these kinds of things, they can really get the brain fired up. And so we recognize that there's addictive potential things for things that are external to us as well as to the neurochemicals of our own mind. And not only can we be addicted to something like food or alcohol, but we can also have a whole series of secondary addictions that are more of an, an emotional addiction, such as control. Something has happened, there's a loss of control, they're stressing out. Now a person's fighting for control. They've fought for control, they've gained control, and what do they feel? They feel better temporarily. And that's how control can become an addiction.
Uh, resentment is seen as the number one killer of alcoholics. You might have thought it would be alcohol. But see, someone, something happens to them. They create a huge resentment. They're stressing out. Can they resolve this resentment? No. Whether they fight, whether they try to avoid it, whether they run from it, that resentment is still there, is still very painful. And they discover there's a way to act out, which causes more resentment and justifying the acting out. But when a person is in a state of resentment, they blame or project everything onto that person, that whatever they're resenting, and then they have a sense of resolution or they're absolved from their part of the, the story or situation, and they feel better temporarily. So recognizing that we can have internal chemical addiction, external chemical addiction, as well as emotions is part of the challenge of recognizing this escape route. Now the challenge here is to recognize that this just becomes more painful and more toxic. And the question of recognizing what we can do to face, to actually intentionally take on facing the stress, facing the concerns, and using a whole variety of tools to deactivate the stress response, help us shift into a more effective mental state, to begin to process and move things forward. That's what I like to refer to as this toxic loop as it relates to so many of the things in our lives as far as addiction, avoidance, and the challenge is how do we face things. Now only when we can deactivate that midbrain can we actually be in a place where we can start to make the choices, take the actions, figure out what next right step is going to work. Now one of the tools I've been experimenting with and having a lot of fun with, if we can kind of pan over to here, this is a nose. It's a whole question of aromatherapy. Now we know that the olfactory bulb, the part of the brain that's responsible for smelling, is right next, it's like right here. Now, an essential oil that I'll often use with, with addicts is wild orange. If they'll put a couple drops on their hand and smell that, I've never yet met anybody who doesn't go, well, that smells good. Well, that starts to ping the pleasure center in a different kind of way. It also disrupts the thought processes and it can disrupt the emotion that's going on. And then they can start to move from here to that frontal cortex again and saying, what's my next right step? Maybe I need to call somebody, somebody in my recovery program so I can explain why I'm so agitated and work through that rather than just getting lost and being agitated, getting caught in this toxic loop, wanting to escape, go through the relapse cycle once again. As wives and mothers, I think it's really important that women typically are the caregivers or the nurturers in the home. Not that we want it to stay that way. I love the fact that many men are getting interested in the Healer's Touch method. Don't exclude the fathers. And, and it's so important. I just had a session with a, with a man today who our session was, and he said I'm able to share. He said I can even use his name. But we talked about his relationship with his, with his daughter and how daddies can sometimes be this father bear influence in a daughter's life. And they just want to protect. They want to preside, protect, and provide. And sometimes a daughter doesn't necessarily understand that when my father is doing this for me, it's because he loves me. So I was able to share with this man how when he comes across angry, 
the, the daughter may not be interpreting his anger as love. Pretty hard she to interpret may, anger as love. She may be interpret, <laughs> interpreting his anger as hate or I'm not good enough. And I told him that I'm writing a book right now called The Glass Slipper and how every little daughter first had as her first Prince Charming her dad. And every father held out the glass slipper. And if we didn't feel like our fit foot, our foot fit, then we would go in search of another prince. A prince where he would hold out the glass slipper. And if our foot fit in his glass slipper, we'd stay and live happily ever after. And so we're talking about that. And the whole goal is to, is to how can we create a joyful heart? How can we raise the vibration to joy? As, as wives, as mothers, as men, as fathers, as husbands, our joy is constantly being interrupted with pop quizzes. How many times have we started our day with our affirmation, our prayer, our scripture, and our motivational self-talk, and we're gonna have a great day, we're gonna have, we're, it's gonna be blissful, and then boom, we get that phone call, or boom, something else happens and interrupts our joy. The goal is then, how do I not go into my midbrain, go into fight, flight, or freeze, get triggered up by old experiences of the past, and then go into um, the old habitual ways of dealing with stress? What I'm doing in my personal life and what I'm really working on, and after hearing this presentation by him, I'm ready to hire him for the rest of my life. But as I'm working through this in my life, I realize that my goal is to live in a more conscious, joyful state. And I have to share something here that is very, very, I think it'll be fascinating to you too. So the other night, I have been waking in the night because I have a little grandson that has bad dreams in the night. Maybe they're night terrors. Um, he hasn't been diagnosed with that, but he's right under my heater vent. And his mother has been listening to some psychologist that says, you just need to let your children cry it out. So she lets him cry. But in my history with my children, I never let them cry through the night. The minute I heard a peep, I was up rocking that baby and singing him lullabies back to sleep. So now we have a difference in mothering. And uh, so little Kalai wakes up in the night. I wake up in the night and it triggers me back to when I was married to my first husband and when Michael used to wake up in the night with big bad dreams in the middle of the night. And my husband would start to yell Michael, go back to sleep. Michael, go back to sleep. And I would have heart palpitations. Oh no, he's going to get mad at Michael. And I don't want Michael to get in trouble. So I would die out of bed at the first peep. The first sound of Michael's awakening, I would go grab my baby, rock him back to sleep, and sing him lullabies. So years have passed. Michael was 15. Michael got in trouble. Michael would sneak out at night. And I would be awakened in the night by bang, 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 bang on the door policeman at the door. Is this your son? Sometimes I didn't want to claim him, but I did. And then there was a night where I was sleeping soundly, having the sweetest dream, and I awakened to my name being whispered, and there was my friend, and my friend actually had come into my house and told me, your son's in the emergency room, he's been beat up with brass knuckles, and he's going to have his, his eye operated on. And I remember heart palpitations, cold sweats, getting in that car and feeling like, oh no, the world's coming down. There's nothing worse than a rude awakening in the middle of the night, you know? Well, again, you talk about the most serious kinds of triggers, the things that parents were most afraid of. 
all those things have been programmed in that brain of ours as this is dangerous, this is scary, and we have an instant, uncontrollable response. I think one of the most important things to recognize, Karen, is we will never train the stress response to go away. That's you not need to learn to deal with it, right? But we've got to recognize that when we get triggered, and this is, I actually, actually like to use the word activated. I teach a musician to recognize this system in their body has now been activated. It's not anxiety, it's not stress, it's not terrible, it's not horrible. It's they're now activated. That's great. And so in the sense of being activated, the question is what can you learn, what can you do to deactivate? And how do you get that calm sense returned? Exactly. And it takes somewhere between 20 to 40 minutes sometimes for all those neurochemicals to get burned out of the system. So it's not like you're going to flip a switch on and then flip it off. Right. You're going to have to learn how to practice doing So it. practicing joy is now my new thing. Um, practicing joy and, and in that process, realizing that when I wake up in the night to the sound of Kali's crying, and I feel those same feelings of apprehension, apprehension and anxiety that I felt when Michael was a little three-year-old, or when Michael was a 15-year-old and the police came knocking, um, I'm realizing that Kali's cry is only a trigger for something that never really peacefully got resolved. And so, as I woke up the other night, I started to pray and I said, you know, my whole work now, my whole life's mission is to help people to create a joyful heart, a joyful mind, and to be able to move quickly, how can we expedite that process? Um, the healer's touch method is a method that I that Dr. Skidmore is is aware of, he's experienced it. But this uses all five senses of the brain, all five senses that are all located in their response ability, the ability to respond to the sense of smell, the sense of taste, the sense of touch, the sense of hearing, and the sense of sight. And so what I would like to ask you is, when somebody brings to me their child or their husband or their sister, and this person is having a problem with toxic loop, they're having a problem with um, first response, they're having a problem with living in the midbrain more often than not, all I knew was that it worked. I didn't know why it worked. I just knew when somebody lay down on the massage table and had Christ-centered music and had oils and had therapeutic touch that was releasing oxytocin as we just simply stroked their arm, it's shifting chemistries in the body. And I would love for you to explain scientifically why using all five senses is better than using just one sense or two senses how um, using them all creates a place of placidity in the brain. Well, when you think of the five senses, not only are they they're designed to help us manage our lives, but every single one of them has a survival value. Every single one of them are tuned specifically to what's going to keep us alive, what's going to be healthy for us. And so on one hand, Karen, you create the ultimate of a safe environment. So if someone's coming to see you, you are in a safe touch, a safe smell, you are in a safe conversation, safe words, safe music, if you will. Um, everything about what they see, feel, experience there is safe. Now with that sense of safety and that sense of calm, then they can start to shift. And a lot of people really don't know how to shift out of that stress response. They just carry a habit level of stress 
this kind of like from medium to high, they never understand low or no stress. Right. They just get caught in this medium to high stress, and if they're not high stress, they think they're not stressed. But they don't really know how to completely relax the body. And the whole experience together really allows that sense of safety, and then it creates a, an avenue for them to begin to, you mentioned just a few minutes ago, something's unresolved something that was unsafe, something that was hurtful, something is stuck, something is not complete, it's not at rest. And so again, that will often allow the defenses to come down, so whatever that is, they can start to bring out, that energy can start to move, and they begin to process it now in their current state, their current state of mind as an adult versus a child, um, with current tools and skills available to them. So once, once we get triggered, it's an automatic response. And that was the best of what we knew when we were seven, when we were five, when we were ten. And so there's a lot of retraining and recognizing that, oh, I, I don't have to go back to that response. I there's can make another a way. difference. I can I, change. And this is the bridge right here. What I'm hearing you say, this is the bridge between the healing arts and psychology. Because when you go to a psychologist, you're able to verbalize and vocalize. How amazing would it be? to have a person have a session where they're put now in the safety zone, they're put now into a comfort zone where where they can relax and where they can let go of the, the fear and the agitation and the apprehension, then come in and sit down with a psychologist and talk to him and, have, and address what can I do to make those changes in my thought patterns. I want to change my thinking. I want to change my thought patterns so that I can practice joy, I can practice love, I can practice peace in situations that normally catapulted me out into my toxic loop or into my fight, flight, or freeze. It's interesting, if you look at the reality of physical waste of living, every home, every neighborhood, every city has garbage disposals, I mean, a whole system, a very sophisticated system to manage the physical waste of living. But there's a tremendous amount of emotional waste in living. And that's part of what in combination is so effective is that you know this is about getting rid of the emotional waste, freeing up what's carrying, you know, bogging people down, what's burdening people, and allowing them to be able to move forward, move freely, to be able to step forward in a way that's like, I'm now free from that. I'm not carrying it around. It's so true. And as I think about it, I remember back into massage school when they'd say, a lot of people run for the chiropractor to get that bone adjusted. What they don't realize is that the muscle is torqued or twisted or tensed, ten has tension, and that that muscle keeps pulling the bone out. So if we don't relax the muscle, the bone's going to get torqued again and pulled. So I'm seeing this in relation to using all five senses with psychology. If we don't change our thinking process, it's just going to go back into first response and into that midbrain. If we can learn to help our children, help ourselves through having some tools, whether it be using music, massage, all five senses, then I bring myself into a place of harmony, balance, and placidity, then I can come and talk to you and say, Dr. Skidmore, what can I do so that I can change the thought process? I want to change my thought process. I've got my tools. I use my aromatherapy. I use my oils. I'm doing some self-nurturing now, but I'm still working on changing my addiction to the chemical of whatever it is. 
to the negative chemical. I want to create an addiction to a new positive thing, to joy, to bliss, to going to through into my right mind and seeing life in a celebratory, in a, a way of gratitude, in finding the blessings in disguise, finding the beauty in the ashes, and helping other people to do that. So I want to come and see you. I encourage all of you to come to Dr. Skidmore if you live in the Utah area. Maybe he will set up an online service where he can do phone appointments and phone consultations. Maybe you have that. Skype works very well. And Skype. You know, I'm finding that I can send an MP3 with a song on it, and these women who already have the oils in their homes, I send them an MP3, say, okay, now sit back in your chair, I'm on the phone with you, you listen to the song, and breathe in the oil, and then let's talk about it. And so I would love to do that with Dr. Skidmore, and I would love to have you do more of these little videos with us to talk about how we can change our thinking and change our life into more positive, because it's not really about a change of heart at first. It's about a change of thought at first. Once we can change the way we process things and get out of those childish ways. When I was a child, I thought as a child, but now I'm a mature grown-up and I'm learning to think as a mature grown-up. That's why I wanted to introduce Dr. John Skidmore to you, because he can help us to change the way we think, which will help us to get a joyful heart. Karen, thank you very much. I appreciate being able to do this. There's a lot of different ideas, a lot of different things that are needed in the context of tools and skills to manage this. And we always do the best with what we've got. But if we don't have the right tool, we don't have the right skill, you know, okay, yes, I've used a butter knife to take a screw out of a wall before. It's just not quite as efficient or as effective. So as we're in this process of developing new tools and skills to move our lives forward, that's really what it's all about. So it's great to have you know, the psychology, to me it's really about what's going to work, what's going to be able to move that person forward faster in healthy ways. And so whatever tools we have available that are healthy that work for us, we want to be able to use those, maximize those. So it's great with what you're doing. And I'm excited because as I look over here and I see drugs, alcohol, sex, food, gambling, and spending, well, my thing wasn't on the list. But I will tell you that I did find an addiction and my addiction is just packed with theobromide and it's dark chocolate. And I learned that if I turned to chocolate, I mean, I reached for it. I, I would have it all through the day and it was dark almond seas. I mean, I could own a franchise of seas and probably be a millionaire by now. But I realized that that really was my way. And I remember thinking when I was in toxic loop, where's the seas? Where's the seas? Please pass the seas. Let's head over to seas. And actually, it actually worked. But you know what? It has some detrimental effects too. And so my goal is to find those healthy choices that can help me move out of toxic loop into a joyful heart and into raising the vibration of joy. I truly, Dr. Skidmore, I want to live in an attitude of gratitude. I want to see the blessing in disguise quicker, faster. I want to see the beauty in the ashes immediately. I want to help prepare this world for a millennium of love, joy, and peace where we're actually ushering it in because we're choosing to get out of our fight, fight and freeze into our joy, happiness, and peace. And one of the terms that uh, you're describing that I would put as an umbrella term is really a sense of freedom, a freedom to make the choices, a freedom to make the 
uh, responses to the different circumstances that are coming up quicker and faster. Uh, one of the ways I like to look at that from the standpoint of a performance coach is really the freedom to sing whatever song it is we want to sing. Be able to be out there to do it with confidence, with ease, with enthusiasm, with passion. And do that in such a way that that song can impact other people. So we're really working on the same things, different levels, but it's great to be able to work with you. I know. I love it. I'm so grateful for you. Honestly, I, I don't think there's any accidents. And I'm so excited that God helped me to find someone who understands the science behind the method that he gave me to help me through my depression. And I am grateful for that. So Dr. Belknap, I'd like to ask you for a scientific explanation on why the Heater's Touch method using all five senses would bring about a change in the mind so that a person who is feeling anxious or sad or aching, heart aching, how would using all five senses quicken that process to help them come back into a place of peace and relaxation? That's an excellent question. I'll be pleased to address it. The human brain is completely different than any other animal form in the earth. They all have instincts that they live by, but have no freedom of choice because they're entirely programmed in a certain way. The human brain is characteristically endowed with a portion of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. No animal has a prefrontal cortex. And within the prefrontal cortex, we learn and experience what is right and wrong, what is good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, for uh, the experiences that we're engaged in at any one particular time. The frontal lobe is found in primates and some of the other higher forms of mammals, but none of them have a freedom of choice. They're all governed by instinct. But mankind has a freedom of choice to utilize all of the portions of the brain, all of the five senses which you asked about. And those can be pleasant experiences, positive experiences, or they can be negative experiences. But the area of the brain on any thought process or experience being engaged in can influence the right side of the prefrontal cortex, uniquely human, and lets the individual know that this is either good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, proper or improper. And uh, that uh, particular difference then goes along with the thought or idea as a companion thought process to the left side of the prefrontal cortex, which evaluates what is going on and what should be done about it in terms of future activity. So how does that affect with the basal ganglia? That was fascinating. Like right. with us. We all have here in the central part of the brain what we call the basal ganglia. This particular area maintains us for life. It gives us the chance to be motivated to take care of ourselves so that we can always live. And it's fear of death, it's consciousness 
regarding uh, interrelationships with other people and the sexual drives which characterize the perpetuation of the race through uh, sexual relations. These can be guided by uh, just the basal ganglia alone, or they can be guided by a combination of the basal ganglia plus the prefrontal cortex to give them the right direction to take in life. So what happens in an addictive situation, a person with an addicted brain, how does that affect the basal ganglia and then the prefrontal cortex? Good question. There are two kinds of things that we deal with in terms of addiction. The addiction can be uh, to drugs, which is quite concrete, or it can be uh, due to behavioral patterns that uh, are selfish, not concerned with other people, demanding things for them alone and not to share with other people the benefits of life. Mankind has that ability, whereas animals do not have that endowment. They all operate by instinct. We have, yes, the basic instinct of the basal ganglia that keeps us alive, but at the same time we can modify the behavior of that individual as a result of their freedom of choice to be even a greater individual in terms of help and service to their fellow man and particularly to the structure and relationship of the, of the family unit. So what happens when a person repeatedly makes poor choices? and then an addiction occurs, what happens in the prefrontal cortex? That excellent question can lead me to the comment that if the basal ganglia takes over and is self-centered about having the individual go the way they want to for their own selfish reasons, the prefrontal cortex from that abnormal behavior begins to shut down and actually stop working. So the thing which makes us outstanding of all of the creations in life, our free agency is something that animals do not have, but we have that freedom of choice. And if we have that freedom used in the proper way, we can help each other. We can build not only the family, but the interrelationship of mankind one to another all through life experience. So I have a question that we didn't discuss before. Say a child grows up on computer games and that's all they do and that's all that they're functioning with. What happens? Does that affect the basal ganglia? Does that affect the prefrontal cortex? And when those things get affected, does that mean that that person's more animalistic? Um, not necessarily from playing computer games, but, but are we, if we're not utilizing our whole brain, then are we becoming less human, so to speak? Exactly. It's an interesting thing. We say in the United States that the highest level of academic centers, by example, there are others across the country too, but as a group of universities, the so-called uh, 
universities of the New England states and similar uh, have come to the conclusion that their freshmen coming into schools in the last two or three years in those uh, excellent universities are about one to two years behind academically because they have become addicted to, elect to electronics. Wow, so there's an addiction. It's an addiction to the, uh, the thing. I, I sat next to uh, a youngster attending a religious group that we call kind of a fireside group after church at the end of uh, the day, and he could not leave his, his communication patterns through these electronic devices. Uh, he couldn't leave them alone, and he became addicted to it. I noticed him several times turning it back on and making responses to someone else. But unfortunately, the communication format through those electronic instruments do not favor the individual's academic achievement or readiness for university function. And that's why the uh, universities are finding their students to be backwards. Can we, can we kind of stimulate that prefrontal cortex through the use of all five senses? Can we ever grow it back or turn it back on once it's been kind of shut down? I think so, very definitely. We can use them functionally. But uh, some of them uh, have let this kind of information carry forward to things of a personal sexual nature, such as personal self-abuse, but also have taken upon themselves, rather than assuming a normal relation of male to female, either in the dating process or in the family process, and. Uh, they engage in sexual indulgence by pornography. And how does that affect the prefrontal cortex? It shuts it down. The people that are becoming uh, steadily addictive to uh, that particular type of behavior with uh, the behavior of indulging in sexual material by repetitiously watching it they gradually shut down more and more their prefrontal cortex. So recently, we had the opportunity of giving a Little Healer's Touch session to Dr. Belknap, and it was fascinating to hear what he had to say as a psychiatrist about the session. And I would just like to ask you what your feedback is for these people who are learning this method and incorporating it into their homes and families and to use in their friendships and circles so that they can help be a part of the solution for low-grade depression, people feeling just lonely, children feeling like they need more mom time. So what would you say about the five senses and how that affected? Well, I think that's a very excellent question. First of all, there needs to be a loving family support system to help anybody with a mental health problem. And if this takes place with a loving interaction between whole families rather than staying isolated away and 
and not being obedient to good uh, Christ-like relationship patterns, then we fail to bring about change. But what is the basis of change? The basis of change is to reduce from the person the stress and anxiety that may have even gone on to depression. We have to lift that away from them. And one of the best ways is a talent which you've been able to develop yourself, and that is to use all of the five senses, including smell. And that's excellent because the nervous system calms itself and relaxes itself in the presence of pleasant smelling environment. Great. So show me on the brain here how where are these five senses, how where they're located. It's just fascinating to know what's under our hood. We come without an owner's manual. At the base of the brain, just behind the frontal lobe and the prefrontal lobe, is the visual uh, organism. It uh, is tempting to call it uh, the uh, nerves that actually induce uh, images of vision, but actually it's a piece of the brain that's the uh, article uh, of nerves that actually penetrate the eye. And when the eye sees something, it goes through the optic nerve, which is really a part of the brain right from the eyeball. Mm. But just above it is the nose. And uh, immediately behind the uh, visual perception area of the brain is the one that uh, deals with smelling as well as with taste. And both of those are important. We're always concerned about uh, uh, taste, uh, as uh, an important factor, but the smelling of something in the home environment or even out in the public is uh, best handled as a, an effective assistance to the individual to smell things that will relax the brain, get rid of the anxious cycling between the uh, areas of the brain that deal like an animal rather than dealing like a uh, God-created creature of having the prefrontal lobe govern and direct the life of the person. So, I wanna, while we're talking about the prefrontal lobe again, one thing that I thought was fascinating is that you had said that if we make incorrect choices or sin, that we actually negate our personality, that we are becoming less of ourselves. And then we develop these perceptions of ourselves that are negative, and then we act out on those perceptions. The actual characteristic of a human being as compared with the animal world is that we have a freedom of choice that we have our free agency to whether we move in a certain direction, which is to better ourselves or to regress back to an animal gratifying level of existence. Okay. And uh, all of the senses ought to be used 
with an individual in a proper way in order to give the brain the opportunity of becoming uh, a happy, well-adjusted, and uh, at peace individual. So do you believe that somebody suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, do you think that this could assist them using the five senses to help create a sense of peace for them so that they could, their brains could get out of the cyclical? Very much so. Yeah, pleasant environment, a comfortable family, things at the theater, things on television, the things through other media designs need to be so that the individual has uplifted, not to become dependent on those particular concepts. In other words, people may develop the idea of becoming addicted to going to movies or addicted to sitting in front of the television set uh, for many hours. This is fine on a limited scale, balanced out with other things. Other activities. So as we, as we bring this session to a close, I would love to have you share with our audience about the interdisciplinary team that you've been mentioning to me and how that interacts and works together for the good of an individual and for their healing process. It's extremely important to take the several interested specializations in mental health to work together as a team, rather than just psychiatrists setting their office out here by themselves and to use only their own interrelationship with the patients, but to use a series of them which can give a point of view which is uh, very valuable. And one of those in your own experience has been the uh, use of, uh, among the five senses of the body, to use the olfactory or the smelling sensations to be a positive effect rather than a negative. And uh, what you have produced allows for that positive uh, experience to take place, and that's important. And then as this team works together, they have feedback and they can discuss a protocol or something that will, a system that can help the client. Exactly. And the families are used, so if a mother and father were to learn a method that could help them be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem or, or not even part of it at all, that would be a good thing. Precisely. It uh, is a tendency within our culture, if we find one factual helper, to put all of our marbles in that one basket as a solution. And I thank you for sharing this with many very beautiful, wonderful people, many who their faces I haven't even seen, I haven't even met them yet. So thank you for your expertise. 